Chapter One of the Moors in Spain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S. S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. The Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Paul. Chapter One, The Last of the Goths. When the armies of Alexander the Great were trampling upon the ancient empires of the East, one country remained undisturbed and undismayed. The people of Arabia sent no humble embassies to the conqueror. Alexander resolved to bring the contemptuous Arabs to his feet. He was preparing to invade their land when death laid its hands upon him, and the Arabs remained unconquered. This was more than three hundred years before Christ, and even then the Arabs had long been established in independence in their great desert peninsula. For nearly a thousand years more, they continued to dwell there in a strange solitude. The great empire sprang up all around them. The successors of Alexander founded the Syrian kingdom of the Seleucid and the Egyptian dynasty of Ptolemies. Augustus was crowned imperator at Rome. Constantine became the first Christian emperor at Byzantium. The hordes of the barbarians bore down upon the wide-reaching provinces of the Caesars, and still the Arabs remained undisturbed, unexplored, and unsubdued. Their frontier cities might pay homage to Khosros or Caesar, the legions of Rome might once and again flash across their highland waste, but such impress was faint and transitory, and left the Arabs unmoved. Hemmed in as they were by lands ruled by historic dynasties, their desert and their valor ever kept out the invader, and from the days of remote antiquity to the seventh century of the Christian era, hardly anything was known of these secluded people, save that they exist, and that no one attacked them with impunity. Then suddenly a change came over the character of the Arabs. No longer courting seclusion, they came forth before the world, and proceed in good earnest to conquer it. The change had been caused by one man. Mohammed, the Arabian prophet, began to preach the religion of Islam in the beginning of the 7th century, and his doctrine, falling upon a people prone to quick impulses and susceptible of strong impressions, worked a revolution. What he taught was simple enough. He took the old faith of Hebrews, which had its disciples in Arabia, and making such additions and alterations as he thought needful, he preached the worship of one God as new revelation to a nation of idolaters. It is difficult for us in the present time to understand the irresistible impulse which the simple and unemotional creed of Mohammed gave to the whole people of Arabia. But we know that such religious revolutions have been and that there is always a mysterious and potent fascination in the personal influence of a true prophet. Mohammed was so far true that he taught honestly and strenuously what he believed to be the only right faith, and there was enough of sublimity in the creed and of enthusiasm in the prophet and his hearers to produce that wave of overmastering popular feeling which people call fanaticism. The Arabs before the time of Mohammed had been a collection of rival tribes or clans, excelling in the savage virtues of bravery, hospitality, and even chivalry, and devoted to the pursuit of booty. 
the prophet turned the Arab tribes for the nonce into the Muslim people, filled them with the fervor of martyrs, and added to the greed of plunder the nobler ambition of bringing all mankind to the knowledge of the truth. Before Mohammed died, he was master of Arabia, and the united tribes who had embraced the Muslim or Mohammedan faith were already spreading over the neighboring lands and subduing the astonished nations. Under his successors, the caliphs, the armies of Muslims over in Persia and Egypt and North Africa as far as the pillars of Hercules, and the Muezzins changed the call to prayer to the faithful over all the land from the river Oxus in Central Asia to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. The Mohammedans, or Saracens, a word which means Easterns, were checked in Asia Minor by the forces of the Greek emperor, and it was not till the 15th century that they at last obtained the long-coveted possession of Constantinople by the valor of the Ottoman Turks, so too at the opposite extremity of the mediterranean it was an officer of the greek emperor who for a while held the arab advance in check the conquerors swept over the province of north africa and after a long struggle reduced the turbulent berber tribes for a while to submission till only the fortress of ceuta held out against them like the rest of the southern shore of the mediterranean Ceuta belonged to the Greek emperor, but it was so far removed from Constantinople that it was thrown upon the neighboring kingdom of Spain for support, and while still nominally under the authority of the emperor, looked really to the king of Toledo for assistance and protection. It is not likely that all the aid that Spain could have given would have availed against the surging tide of Saracen invasion, but as it happened, there was a quarrel at that time between Julian the governor of Ceuta and Roderick the king of Spain, which opened the doors to the Arabs. Spain was then under the rule of Visigoths, or Westgoths, a tribe of barbarians, like many others who overran the provinces of Roman Empire in its decline. The Ostrogoths had occupied Italy, and their kinsmen, the Visigoths, displacing or subduing the Suevi, or Suevians and other rude German tribes established themselves in the Roman province of Iberia, Spain, in the 5th century after Christ. They found the country in the same condition of effeminate luxury and degeneracy that had proved the ruin of other parts of the empire. Like many warlike people, the Romans, when their work was accomplished and the world was at their feet, had rested contentedly from their labors and abandoned themselves to the pleasure that wealth and security permit. They were no longer the brave stone men who lived simple lives and left the plowshare to wield the sword when a Scipio or a Caesar summoned them to defend the country or to conquer a continent. In Spain, the richer classes were given over to luxury and sensuality. They lived only for eating and drinking, gambling and all kinds of excitement. The mass of the people were either slaves or what was much the same thing, laborers bound to the soil, who could not be detached from the land they cultivated but passed with it from master to master. Between the rich and the slaves was a middle class of burghers who were perhaps even worse off 
for on their shoulders lay all the burdens of supporting the state. They paid the taxes, performed the civil and municipal functions, and supplied the money which the rich squandered upon their luxuries. In a society so demoralized, there was no element of opposition to a resolute invader. The wealthy nobles were too deeply absorbed in their pleasure to be easily roused by rumors of an enemy. Their swords were rusty with being too long laid aside. The slaves felt little interest in change of masters, which could hardly make them more miserable than they already were and the burghers were discontented with the arrangement of the burdens of the state by which they had to bear most of the cost while they reaped none of the advantages. Out of such men as these, a strong and resolute army could not be formed, and the Goths therefore entered Spain with little trouble. The cities willingly opened their gates, and the deceased civilization of Roman Spain yielded with hardly a blow. The truth was that the road of God had been too well prepared by previous hordes of barbarians, Alans, Vandals, and Suevi, to need much exertion on their own parts. The Romanized Spaniards had fully learned what a barbarian invasion entailed, they had seen their cities burnt, their wives and children carried captives, those few leaders who showed any manly resistance massacred, they had seen the consequence of the barbarian scourge plague and famine, wasted land, starving inhabitants, and everywhere savage anarchy. They had learned their lessons and meekly admitted the gods. In the beginning of the 8th century, when the Saracens had reached the African shore of the Atlantic and were looking across the Straits of Hercules to the sunny provinces of Andalusia, the gods had been in possession of Spain for more than 200 years. There had been time enough to reform the corrupt conditions of the kingdom and to infuse the fresh vigor of youth, which an old civilization sometimes gains by the introduction of barbarous but masculine races. There were special reasons why the Goths should improve the states of Spain. They were not only bold, strong, and uncorrupted by ease of life. They were Christians and, in their way, very honest Christians. Spain was but nominally converted at the time of their arrival. Constantine had indeed promulgated Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire, but it had taken very little root in the western provinces. The advent of ignorant but devout race like the Goths might probably arouse a more honest faith in the new religion amid the worn-out paganism of the kingdom, and the Catholic priests were full of hope for the future of their church. The result did not in any way justify the anticipation. The gods remained devout indeed, but they regarded their act of religion chiefly as reparation for their vices. They compounded for exceptionally bad sins by an added amount of repentance, and then they sinned again without compunction. They were quite as corrupt and immoral as the Roman nobles who had preceded them, and their style of Christianity did not lead them to endeavor to improve the condition of their subject. The serfs were in even more pitiable state than before. Not only were they tied to the land or master, but they could not marry without his consent, and if slaves of neighboring estate intermarried, their children were distributed between the owners of the several properties. The middle classes bore, as in Roman times, the burdens of taxation, 
and were consequently bankrupt and ruined. The land was still in the hands of the few, and the large estates were indifferently cultivated by a crowd of miserable slaves, whose dreary lives were brightened by no hope of improvement or dream of release before death. The very clergy who preached about the brotherhood of Christians, now that they had become rich and owned great estate, joined in the traditional policy and treated their slaves and serfs as badly as any Roman noble. The rich were sunk in the same slow of sensuality that had proved the ruin of the Romans, and the vices of Christian goths rivaled, if they did not exceed, the polished wickedness of the pagans. King Witiza, says the chronicler, anxious to find some reason for the overthrow of the Christians by the Saracens, taught all Spain to sin. Spain indeed knew only too well how to sin before, and Witiza may have been no worse than his predecessors, but the Goths gave a fresh license to the general corruption. The vices of barbarians show open a close resemblance to those of the decayed civilization, and in this instance the change of rulers brought no amelioration of morals. Such was the condition of Spain when the Muslims approached her borders. A corrupt aristocracy divided the land among themselves. The great estates were tilled by a wretched and hopeless race of serfs. The citizen classes were ruined. On the other side of the Straits of Gibraltar were the soldiers of Islam, all hardy warriors, fired with the fervors of new faith, bred to arms from their childhood, simple and rude in their life, and eager to plunder the rich land of the infidels. Between two such people there could be no doubt as to the issue of the fight, but to remove the possibility of doubt, treachery came to the aid of the invaders. Witiza had been deposed by Roderick, a prince, who seemed to have begun his reign well, but who presently succumbed to the temptation of wealth and power. His selfish, pleasure-loving disposition set fire to the combustible materials that surround him, and that needed but a spark to explode and destroy his kingdom. It was then the custom among the princes of the state to send their children to the court, to be trained in whatever appertained to good breeding and polite conduct. Among others, Count Julian, the governor of Ceuta, sent his daughter Florinda to Roderick's court at Toledo to be educated among the queen's waiting women. The maiden was very beautiful, and the king, forgetful of his honor, which bound him to protect her as he would his own daughter, put her to shame. The dishonor was the greater, since Julian's wife was a daughter of Witiza, and the royal blood of the gods has thus been insulted in the person of Florinda. In her distress, the young girl wrote to her father, and summoning a trusty page, bade him, if he hoped for knightly honor or lady's favor, to speed with all haste, night and day, over land and sea, till he placed the letter in Count Julian's hand. Julian had no reason to love King Roderick in his own connection with the deposed and probably murdered King Witiza forbade fellowship with the usurper. And his daughter's dishonor fanned his smoldering rancor to a blaze of vengeful fury. He had so far successfully resisted the attacks of the Arabs, but now he resolved no longer to defend the kingdom of his daughter's destroyer. The Saracens should have Spain if they would, 
and he was ready to show them the way. Full of a passion for revenge, Julian hastened to the court of Roderick, where he so skillfully disguised his mind that the king, who felt some remorse and trust that uh, Florinda had kept her secret, heaped honors upon him, took his counsel in everything related to the defense of the kingdom, and even by his treacherous advice sent the best horses and arms in Spain to the south under Julian's command to be ready against the infidel invaders. Count Julian departed from Toledo in the highest favor of the king, taking his daughter with him. Roderick's parting request was that the count would send him some special kind of hawks, which he needed for hunting. Julian made answer that he would bring him such hawks as he had never in his life seen before, and with his covert hint of the coming of the Arabs, he went back to Ceuta. As soon as he returned, he paid a visit to Musa, the son of Nosair, the Arab governor of North Africa, with whom his troops had many times crossed sword, and he told him that the war was now over between them, henceforth they must be friends. Then he filled the ears of the Arab general with stories of the beauty and richness of Spain, of its rivers and pastures, vines and olives, its splendid cities and palaces, and the treasures of the goat. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, he said, and Musa had only to go over and take it. Julian himself would show him the way and land him the ships. The Arab was cautious general, however. This inviting proposal, he considered, might cover a treacherous ambuscade, so he sent his messengers to his master, the caliph at Damascus, to ask for instructions, and meantime contented himself with sending a small body of 500 men on the tariff in 710 to make a raid in Julian's four ships upon the coast of Andalusia. The Arabs had not yet become used to the navigation of the Mediterranean, and Musa was unwilling to expose more than an insignificant part of his army to the perils of the deep. Tarif returned in July, having successfully accomplished his mission. He had landed at a place which still bears his name, Tarifa, had plundered Algeciras, and seen enough to assure him that Count Julian's tale of the defenseless state of Spain was true, and that his own loyalty to the invaders was to be depended upon. Still Musa was not disposed to venture much upon the new conquest. The caliph of Damascus has enjoined him on no account to risk the whole Muslim army in unknown dangers, and had only authorized small foreign expeditions. Still encouraged by Tarif's success, Musa resolved upon a somewhat larger venture. In 711, learning that Roderick was busy in the north of his dominions, where there was a rising of the Basques, Musa dispatched one of his generals, the Moor Tariq, with 7,000 troops, most of whom were also Moors, to make another raid upon Andalusia. The raid carried him further than he expected. Tariq landed at the Lion's Rock, which has ever since borne his name, Gebal Tariq, Gibraltar, and after capturing Cateya, advanced inland. He had not proceeded far when he perceived the whole force of the Goths under Roderick advancing to encounter him. The two armies met on the banks of a little river called by the Saracens the Wadi Beka, near Guadalete, 
which runs into the strait by Cape Trafalgar. The legend runs that sometime before this, as King Roderick was seated on his throne in the ancient city of Toledo, two old men entered the audience chamber. They were arrayed in white robes of ancient make, and their girdles were adorned with the signs of zodiac and hung with innumerable keys. Know, O king, said they, that in days of yore, when Hercules had set up his pillars on the ocean strait, he erected a strong tower near to this ancient city of Toledo, and shut up within it a magical spell, secured by a ponderous iron gate with locks of steel, and he ordained that every new king should set a fresh lock to the portal, and foretold war and destruction to him who should seek to unravel the mystery of the tower. Now we and our ancestors have kept the door of the tower from the days of Hercules, even to this hour, and though there have been kings who have sought to discover the secret, their ends has ever been death or sore amazement. None ever penetrate beyond the threshold. Now, O king, we come to beg thee to affix thy lock upon the enchanted tower, as all the kings before thee have done. Whereupon the aged man departed. But Roderick, when he had thought of all they had said, became filled with the burning desire to enter the enchanted tower. And despite the warnings of his bishop and counsellors, who told him again that none had ever entered the tower alive, and that even great Caesar had not dared to attempt the entrance. Nor shall it ever ope, all records say, save to a king the last of all his line. What time his empire totals to decay, and treason digs beneath her fatal mine, and high above impends avenging wrath divine. Despite all admonition, he rode forth one day, accompanied by his cavaliers, and approached the tower. It stood upon a lofty rock, and cliffs and precipices hemmed it in. Its walls of jasper and marble, inlaid in subtle devices, which shone in the rays of the sun. The entrance was through a passage cut in the stone, and was closed by the great iron gate, covered with the rusty locks of all the centuries from the time of Hercules to Witiza. And on either hand stood the aged man who came to the audience hall. All day long did the two old janitors, though foreboding ill, aided by Roderick's gay cavaliers, labor to turn the rusty keys, until when it was near sundown, the gate was undone, and the king and his train advanced to the entrance. The gate swung back, and they entered the hall, on the other side of which, guarding a second door, stood a giant bronze figure of terrible aspect, which wielded a huge mace unceasingly and dealt mighty blows upon the earth around. When Roderick saw this figure, he was dismayed a while, but seeing on his breast the walls, I do my duty, he plucked up courage and conjured it to let him pass in safety, for he meant no sacrilege, but only wished to learn the mystery of the tower. Then the figure stood still, with its mates uplifted, and the king and his followers passed beneath it into the second chamber. They found this encrusted with precious stones, and in its midst was a table, set there by Hercules, and on it a casket with the inscription. In this coffer is the mystery of the tower. The hand of none but a king can open it, 
but let him beware, for wonderful things will be disclosed to him, which must happen before his death. When the king had opened the coffer, there was nothing in it but a parchment folded between two plates of copper. On it were figured men on horseback, fierce of countenance, armed with bows and scimitars, and above them was the motto. Behold, rash men, those who shall hold thee from thy throne and subdue thy kingdom. And as they gazed upon the picture, on a sudden they heard the sound of warfare, and saw, as though in a cloud, that the figure of the strange horseman began to move, and the picture became a vision of war. So, to set Roderick's eye in order spread, successive pageants filled that mystic scene, showing the fate of battles or they bled, and issue of events that had not been. They beheld before them a great field of battle, where Christians and Moors were engaged in a deadly conflict. They heard the rush and tramp of steed, the blast of trump and clarion, the clash of cymbal, and the stormy din of a thousand drums. There was the flash of sword and maces and battle axes, with the whistling of arrows and the hurling of darts and lances. The Christians quailed before the four. The infidels pressed upon them, put them to utter rout. The standard of the cross was cast down. The banner of Spain was trodden underfoot. The air resounded with the shouts of triumph, with yells of fury, and with the groans of dying men. Amidst the flying squadrons, King Roderick beheld the crowned warrior, whose back was turned toward him, but whose armor and device were his own, and who was mounted on a white steed that resembled his own war-horse Aurelia. In the confusion of the fight, the warrior was dismounted and was no longer seen to be, and Aurelia galloped wildly through the field of battle without a rider. When the king and his attendants fled dismayed from the enchanted tower, the great bronze figure had disappeared. Two aged janitors lay dead at the entrance, and amid various stormy portents of nature, the tower burst into a blaze, and every stone was consumed and scattered to the winds, and it is related that wherever its ashes fell to the earth, there was seen a drop of blood. The medieval chroniclers, both Christian and Arab, delighted to relate portents such as these. Legend and vision, prophecy and sign, where wonders wild of Arabs combine with Gothic imagery of dark shade. And we read how both sides of the approaching combat were cheered and dismayed by omens of various kinds. The prophet himself is said to have appeared to Tariq and to have bidden him of good courage to strike and to conquer, and many like fables are related. But whatever may have been the dreams and visions of the armies then encamped over against one another near the river Guadalete, the result of the combat was never doubtful. Tariq, indeed, although he had been reinforced with 5,000 Berbers, commanded still by the little army of 12,000 troops, and Roderick had six times as many men to his back. But the invaders were bold and hardy men, used to war and led by a hero. The Spaniards were a crowd of ill-treated slaves, and among their commanders were treacherous nobles. The kinsmen of Witiza were there obedient to the summons of Roderick but they intended to desert to the enemy's side in the midst of battle and win the day for Saracens. They had no idea that they were betraying Spain. 
They thought that the invaders were only in search of booty, and that the raid over and booty secured, they would go back to Africa, when the line of Itiza would be restored to its ancient seat. And thus they lent a hand to the day's work which placed the fairest province of Spain for eight centuries under the Muslim domination. When the Moors saw the mighty army that Roderick had brought against them, and beheld the king in his splendid armor under a magnificent canopy, their heart for a moment sank within them. But Tariq cried aloud, Men, before you is the enemy, and the sea is at your back. By Allah, there is no escape for you, save in valor and resolution. And they plucked up courage and shouted, We will follow thee, O Tariq, and rushed after the general into the fray. The battle lasted a whole week, and prodigies of valor are recorded on both sides. Roderick rallied his army again and again, but the desertion of partisans of Witiza turned the fortunes of the field, and it became the scene of a disastrous rout. The host of Don Rodrigo was scattered in dismay. When lost was the eighth battle, no heart, no hope had they. He, when he saw the field was lost, and all his hope was flown, he turned him from his flying host, took his way alone, all stained and strewed with dust and blood, like to some smouldering brand plucked from the flame. Rodrigo showed his sword was in his hand, but it was hacked into a sort of dark and purple tin. His jeweled mail had many a flaw, his helmet many a dint. He climbed into a hilltop, the highest he could see, thence all about that wide route his last long look took he. He saw his royal banners where they lay drenched and torn. He heard the cry of victory, the Arab's shout of scorn. He looked for the brave captains that led the host of Spain, but all were fled except the dead, and who could count the slain? Wherever his eye could wander, all bloody was the plain, and while thus he said, the tears he shed ran down his cheeks like rain. Last night I was the king of Spain, today no king am I. Last night fair castle held my train, tonight where shall I lie? Last night a hundred pages did serve me on the knee. Tonight not one called my own, not one pertains to me. O oh, luckless, luckless was the hour, and cursed was the day when I was born to have the power of this great seniory. Unhappy me that I should see the sun go down tonight. O oh, death, why now so slow art thou? Why fearest thou to smite? So runs the old Spanish ballad, but the fate of Roderick had remained a mystery to this day. His horse and sandals were found on the river bank the day after the battle, but his body was not with them. Doubtless he was drowned and washed out to the great ocean, but the Spaniard would not believe this. They clothed the dead king with a holy mystery which assuredly did not enfold him when alive. They made the last of the gods into a legendary savior like King Arthur, and believed that he would come again from his resting place in some ocean isle, healed of his wounds, to lead the Christians once more against the infidels. In the Spanish legend, Roderick spent the rest of his life in pious acts of penance, and was slowly devoured by snakes in punishment for the sins he had committed, until at last his crime was washed out. 
the body's pang had spared the spirit's pain, and Don Rodrigo was suffered to depart to the peaceful isle, whence his countrymen long awaited his triumphant return. End of chapter 1